Happy Father's Day, Podcast Planet. It is June 21st. Well, it's going to be June 21st in 20 minutes. It's still 11.40. But by the time I'm done this, it should be Father's Day. So call your old man and say, you know, thanks for creating me. Because he did. And you should appreciate that. I got my dad a bunch of uh, deli goods from Zabar's in New York. So if you have a, if your father is an older Jewish man, the way to their heart is by cold cuts, pickled locks, and various cheeses and charcuterie. That's how you do it. So that's my advice to you. So I'm kind of unpredictably delayed today. I picked a topic so juicy, I didn't want to do it without like 200% of my attention. I mean, you don't want to be in a Michael Jordan documentary saying like, yeah, he was good and stuff. You want vivid imagery. You want intense research. You want passion leaking from each individual pore. I want goosebumps covering my entire body. And I want it to transfer to you like instantaneously, like you got goosebumps now. And, you know, you don't, you don't talk about Frank Lloyd Wright and say like, oh, he built some houses. Or you don't talk about Einstein. It's like, yeah, he did some math. No, for this topic, I wanted all the research and I wanted to go through the movie not once, but twice. Actually, I didn't go through it twice. I'm, I was trying to build myself up. But it's, it's a long movie. So if I did it twice, that'd be like, the entire day so my bad I was boasting I was boasting in a way I shouldn't have but now you know but like I did all my chores today before before doing this you know cleaned the house vacuumed all that good stuff and I groomed out the dogs which is a process if anyone has giant fluffy dogs it's it takes a while they're not that pleased that you're doing it meditated took a cat nap around five even though I only got up at 2 p.m. so kind of confused like I slept like eight nine hours like why did I need a nap at five but my body told me hey power down for 30 minutes so I was like all right cool body I'm gonna listen to you it's kind of annoying that our brain is uh like it's kind of the victim or you have to kind of you have to pay homage to this meat wagon that we're in like why can't our brain just operate without our body being rested it's not fair one day we'll be robots with just you know the brain in us so I'm hoping for that you know, they'll freeze my body one day and then uh, they'll wake my brain up and they'll put me on like a Robotron 9000, just the brain of me with, you know, full robot body. So here's hoping. But, uh, you know, got my exercising out of the way while I listened to other podcasts to get inspiration. Uh, I was listening to Rewatchables today. It's Bill Simmons kind of a similar kind of movie homage podcast. And I was listening to Basic Instinct today. And that is a wild dirty movie so it was a wild dirty podcast that i enjoyed and while i watched the movie that i'm going to talk about today i had two cups of coffee was lifting weights and i mean i was taking notes and doing research at the same time because this movie is so frantic so frenetic so manic that i felt i needed to get in that kind of that headspace to give you the proper the proper kind of guide for this movie so I'll start with, I'll start it off. So here we go. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Goodfellas podcast. So this is Martin Scorsese's like ultimate love letter to the mafia. It's devotion and attention to every single small detail is just taken with such care from Scorsese. He has all these wide pans, voiceovers, quick cuts, movie tricks, and it makes, I mean, this movie is about, you know, murderers and gangsters and terrible people, but you never feel like the gravity of the murderous lives they live because he's kind of using all these tricks and he's always telling you, he's always like nudging you. He's like, remember, it's just a movie, it's just a movie. And I mean, I guess that's based on uh, Marty. I'm going to call him Scorsese Marty once in a while. So get used to that. Because I mean, how many people do we know that we get, we get to call Marty? So I'm going to use it. He had a huge passion for French new wave cinema. So that's where all the voiceovers, quick cuts, extensive narration came from. And, you know, me being a movie buff, I'm kind of embarrassed that I've never messed around with the French new wave. But apparently it's influenced a bunch of, you know, serious directors, you know, Tarantino, uh, Spike Lee. I don't even, I don't even know what like the main movie is from the French new wave. Although in my defense, in all my discussions and, cinema talk with all my friends no one's ever really talked about uh, the french new wave so maybe maybe it's just lost on my generation and so this was his 1990 movie and this kind of brought him back into the zeitgeist because his uh, 
his eighties, he had a lot of cocaine problems and just a lot of issues, but his last like real hit movie was 1986's color of money. So this was like, he was four years out of the limelight and this kind of brought him back into kind of the, Hey, I'm still here. I can still, you know, I can still bring it a plus kind of stuff. Although, in 1987, he did direct the Michael Jackson bad uh, music video, which was awesome, actually, if you remember it. You know, Jackson's wearing, like, the half Mad Max, half kind of, like, leather jacket, uh, badass stuff, and he's, you know, spray painting and running through a New York subway. So that video, if you think about it, go watch it. But uh, it's a lot better than it should be. And, of course, it is. It's directed by Martin Scorsese. So that was a cool little fact. So I guess his co- cocaine binge in the 80s had some benefits. But uh, so this movie only costs $25 million to make. And I couldn't believe it only made $46.8 million in the box office. I guess it caught on later because, I mean, this movie, it's on TV all the time. It's like one of the highest rated on IMDb out of all the movies. And everyone's seen it. And, you know, if you're flipping through the stations, I mean, I guess you're, if you're old like me and you still have cable and you see it on TNT or on AMC. You're stuck. You're done. You're gonna you're gonna watch for the next three to four hours because this is a two hour forty five minute movie or two hour thirty minute movie, and I mean with commercials and all, it just it takes a while. I mean, yeah, this movie was rated number seventeen all time in movies on IMDb's you know rating system, which is pretty legit because they have Shawshank Redemption number one, and that's the first and last. That's that's the greatest emotional movie ever. We'll we'll talk about that one at some point. Back to Scorsese. So this movie was kind of the opposite of Shawshank. You know, that one's about hope, emotion, connection, and kind of the good in people in dire situations. This movie is about the fun of being bad and how much fun it is to be a gangster and how, it, how, much, how much he adores people that, you know, take what they want and don't ask for permission. So just to put in perspective how kind of bad boy this movie is, there's 321 fucks in this movie. That's right. There's 321 F-bombs throughout the movie. So one every 2.04 minutes. And half of them are compliments of uh, Joe Pesci's fantastic performance as Tommy DeVito. When he won the only Oscar in this movie, actually. He won for Best Supporting Actor. Kind of cool if you look up online uh, his acceptance speech. He just goes up. And I can't tell if he's overwhelmed or underwhelmed. But he goes, it's a privilege. Thank you. And just walks off. And you're like, wow, that guy's cool. I mean, Joe Pesci, for a guy who's like five foot three or five foot four, he is intimidating, funny, crazy. I mean, he's just a huge personality and a terrifying kind of mobster, which is crazy because he's a little munchkin. You know, you could put him in your pocket and hang out with him. You could feed him little M&Ms in there. But for some reason on screen, and they don't film him, you know, they don't try to make him look bigger. Like in the Fast and Furious movies, uh, Vin Diesel, they like put lifts on him and they always shoot him from below to see to try to make him look bigger than he is when he's like kind of fighting with the rock. They don't do any of that, but he's just so intimidating that it doesn't matter. So, I mean, Pesci's performance is definitely one of the, like the highlights of this movie. We'll get into that later. But just some fun facts to start. I guess Tom Cruise and Madonna were the first choices for the main characters of Henry and Karen. And no, just a thousand times no. I just... I can't, I mean, Madonna's acting was meh and Cruz just kind of as a sleazeball, he's always kind of the good guy in all his movies, except like Magnolia when he's an ultimate scumbag self-help guru, I guess. I mean, this movie, I mean, Henry Hill, who's the main character, he's so Ray Liotta's character. Like there's few roles where you just can't picture anyone else. Like Will Ferrell and Dodgeball, uh, Val Kilmer as uh as Jim Morrison in The Doors, there's certain roles that you just can't picture anyone else doing it. It's just like, that's their role. And this is Ray, Ray Liotta's role. So no to Tom Cruise. Sorry, buddy. Just make another Mission Impossible movie or two. So he seems to be having fun, though. And I don't think Henry Hill actually ever ran in this movie. And if you don't know, Tom Cruise has to run in all his movies at some point. So it wouldn't have been worth it for him. But maybe he could have spliced it in. You never know. So this movie was one of the most expensive soundtracks ever, and it was worth it. I mean, there is the music is what makes, kind of alleviates all the violence and insanity of this movie. So, I mean, if you haven't seen it, so let's back it up a little bit. It's, this, it's based on a biography 
about the life of Henry Hill, who was a gangster in the New York uh, Italian mafia from like the mid-1950s to the mid-1980s. And it's kind of just a depiction of him, his wife, Karen, his compatriots, uh, Tommy DeVito, played by Joe Pesci, and also uh, his kind of other guy, Jimmy Conway, played by Robert De Niro, and their boss, uh, Paul, uh, Paul Cicero, played by Paul Servino. It's kind of, the, you know, it's a mob story over 30 years. And it's just, I mean, that sounds like a lot to cover 30 years. It feels like it flat goes by like, like just quickly. I mean, it is just, he just takes, Scorsese just takes your hand and he's just like, come along on a ride with me. Cause you don't, you feel like you're drunk the whole time. Cause you're like, how, how are they fitting all this information and all this kind of detail into one movie? It's pretty shot. I mean, the 30 years goes by and he encapsulates it in two and a half, in two and a half hours. It's unbelievable. So, uh, see so De Niro I mean like pretty funny that uh De Niro is a method actor so to play Jimmy Conway he kept five cash on him at all times and he had a specific pinky ring and watch to match each suit that he was wearing each day so you know really taking it seriously and you could tell he was he definitely encapsulated Jimmy Conway and De Niro seems like a guy who uh who was a method actor that seems like up his alley I think it's kind of douchey it's like, um, I'm definitely this guy for the next four months. I just think of Daniel Day-Lewis just being a jerk to people on set when he's like the obsessive uh, dressmaker in Phantom Thread or like he's just an oil baron in the 1900s and uh, there will be blood. I, I, I think Daniel Day-Lewis gives everyone a bad name because he's difficult to work with. Like he won't shower if he's playing someone who won't shower. It's like, come on, man, just, just be nice to people around you. Take a shower. But uh, fun fact, uh, Jimmy Conway uh, was first offered to Al Pacino. So I think Al Pacino would have done just fine with it, too, because it's this hot-headed thief uh, kind of gangster. He, and Pacino turned it down because he didn't want to get like typecast as you know an Italian gangster. Come on. I mean, you're in The Godfather. Just, just lean into your role. You're great. You're good at what you do. I mean, you got to embrace who you are. Like I've said before, Dave Chappelle says, like embrace your lane. You know what I mean? Like, this is what I'm good at. Like, give it to me. So, and the other roles will come. And plus, um, when Pacino doesn't play kind of the mob or the cop, he's kind of, kind of lousy. I mean, wow, I can't believe that came out of my mouth. But yeah, I don't, I don't like Pacino that much when he's not playing like a coked out cop or like an evil genius kind of mafia criminal. Those are kind of his two or, I mean, or as a football coach, like a weathered football coach. Because that speech in any given Sunday, that peace with inches speech, I will listen to that seven days a week and twice on Sunday. That will, If you want to watch them, that fires you up. If you want, like, for three minutes, search that. Search Al Pacino, peace with inches speech. You don't even need to know the movie. It's fantastic. But speaking of, like, staying in your lane, uh, 24 of the actors from this movie were in The Sopranos, too. So, I mean... There are people, they're like, hey, we're mafia guys. You know what I mean? Cast us in whatever. So uh, Christopher and Dr. Jennifer Melfi were Spider and uh, were Karen Hill in this movie. So oddly, uh, the, the body count in this movie was really low. There's only 10 dead during the movie. I know that sounds kind of macabre. I'm like, oh, only 10 dead. But I mean, there's mob movies where there's like 75, 100 deaths. So I think that kind of adds to the lighthearted view Scorsese had. So, like, Scorsese grew up in Little Italy in New York as a kid with asthma, and he would kind of look out his window and idolize these gangsters. And you can tell that's kind of his view with uh, how he views the mafia. It's like he kind of idolizes these people. And, you know, that definitely... It, I love that it's part of his life that leaks out onto the screen because it feels real. So let's, let's talk about the movie. Let's get into it. So, like, instantly with the opening credits rushing along like cars on the highway, I mean, it's literally they're just zooming by. Like, you know you're going to be holding on to your life as they whip you through this mafia world. And, like, right away, Pesci, De Niro, and Ray Liotta are in a 70s caddy knifing and shooting a guy in the backseat. Like, how, you, don't get, you don't get dropped into a movie like that. That's the deep end. That's like, I don't know how to swim. I have little floaties on. And they're like, no, we're going to take you deep ocean diving where there's great white sharks and you're like but i'm i have floaties on and i was expecting the kiddie pool where i can see my knees outside of the water nope but you get worried it's going to be like this dark dreary movie at that point and then they freeze frame like the good fellas uh like sign on it and it 
flashes to like to Henry Hill being this kind of precocious 15 year old uh, Brooklyn kid. And you're like, okay, maybe it's going to be a little lighter than I thought. Like that's not going to go right into the murder and all. And it starts in 1955 America in Brooklyn. And it's this, you know, perfect pleasant slice of kind of mafiosa life. And it's like the idea of belonging, playing cards all night and no one called the cops. Everyone's got suits on, you know, the crazy accents, the cigars, the jokes, just like bullshit frat life between grown men. And it just looks like, it's like summer camp for criminals. You know, it just looks like the best time ever. It's, you know, it's a hot summer night and they're all just hanging out, busting each other's balls, shadow boxing, hanging out. And you learn that Pauly is the kind of the big cheese around there, played by Paul Sorvino to perfection. I mean, just, uh, He's just a guy who moves slow. And they say, like, he didn't move, have to move for anyone because that's why he moves slow. Like, what a poetic idea. Like, I don't move fast because I don't have to because I'm the boss. Like, great idea, great line. Could have been in a rap song. I hope it is in a rap song somewhere. I'm sure, like, there's a shout-out for Polly somewhere because there's all the Scarface kind of lo- Scarface love. I'm sure there's some Goodfellas love somewhere. I'll do some research on that later. And they're playing, like, 60s pop like Count Basie type song bopping in the background over multiple scenes. And Ray Liotta's silky voice is kind of just narrating the whole thing. And he did the voiceover in front of a sound guy. Like he was looking at a guy in the booth. So he felt like he was telling a story to an actual person. I'm like, what a genius move. Like, cause you feel it. You feel like he's talking, he's look, he's using his big blue eyes. He's staring right into your soul and he's telling you how it was in this time. And I, I mean, I like that I, throughout this movie and, with the research Scorsese allowed kind of a lot of improvisation and a lot of like actors to just go for it. So good for Marty for being collaborative and, you know, willing to, he's not one of those directors that's like, this is my masterpiece. Do exactly as I say. So I like that, you know, team player. He's LeBron James, not the Michael Jordan. Cause I'm a LeBron guy. And I think I've established that before, but I want the guy that passes and, you know, I mean like cheers his teammates up. I don't want the guy that punches me in, in practice and, breaks uh breaks another teammate's arm and gets coaches fired no thank you i don't want michael jordan although i don't like michael jordan in general that's a rant for another day but boo michael jordan boo the bulls and yeah i'm gonna leave it at that so i mean like we go we get back to henry hill as this 15 year old kind of you know doing little odd jobs for the mob guys around him and he's like i could go anywhere i could do anything like if you don't fall in love with that concept as a 15 year old you know, kid, it's like, my God, that sounds fantastic. It's like, he got to park Cadillacs and he's like, he couldn't even look over the steering wheel and he's parking Cadillacs. And like the cops are happy. They're like, it's corrupt cops that are snagging booze and cigarettes and all the crime seems harmless. No one gets hurt. It seems like everyone's in on it. Like there's just this scene where they're opening up something that they clearly just stole and they didn't know what was in it. And it's just these bunch of yellow sweaters. (laughs) And so all the mob guys, there's like 20, 30 of them are just wearing these nice yellow sweaters. And they're like, oh, nice. This is our new look. So, I mean, like, it's just this laughable, fun kind of little bubble of a world. And a contrast kind of hits with, uh, with Henry when he comes home. He gets hit by his dad. And his dad's just pissed off that, you know, the world has done him wrong and that he doesn't have enough money and that Henry's making more money than him, you know, as a kid. And Henry's got a great philosophy. He says, everyone takes a beating sometimes. And he's just like, yeah, you know what? I mean, I love what I do. And that's a good yearbook quote. Although actually, I mean, actually don't, don't put that as a high school yearbook quote because I'm sure a principal would like call social services and be like, is your dad hitting you? So different time period, but still a good quote for kind of how he wanted to tough it out and how important that mafia life was to him. And like I said, it's like a kid fantasy camp. Uh, like, he had uh, letter. He had letters coming to his house from uh, school saying he, you know, he wasn't showing up, and so he told the mafia guys, and they go to the uh, letter carrier and they stick his head in a pizza oven, and they're like, "You don't give any letters from this kid's school to uh, his house anymore. You got that?" So it's like he's watching as like five or six grown killers are doing his bidding as a 15 year old because they need him to work for him. Like how, how awesome and needed do you feel? You know what I mean? Like you just feel like a big shot. Like you just, I mean, if I was 15, that would be the coolest thing in the world. And the whole time Scorsese is playing these 20 to 40 year old pop songs. And it's such a dirty trick because it's like these, 
it's these songs that like we have in our head, but we don't know the name of them. Like we don't associate them like, oh yeah, that was Britney Spears song from uh, 2002 or, oh, that was uh, Mambo number five. Although I don't think Mambo number five would work too well in this movie, but you never know. But it's just a dirty trick that it works perfectly in all his movies that you're like, this is catchy. I love this. It's, it feels like I dreamt the song once or like I heard it uh, in the radio in the backseat when my parents were playing it. So props to him. I mean, I think Tarantino kind of does the same thing. And it's just, I mean, clearly like the big director is knowing important, how important music is. And kind of the, the poppiness and fun of the music, it's, it's what keeps everything light. It's what keeps you rooting for these guys. And also, I mean, he doesn't show any other perspective. It's literally the voiceovers are Henry, uh, his wife, Karen, and that's it. And there's no perspective of police. There's no perspective of anyone who's getting stolen from or anyone who's been murdered outside of the families. So it's kind of like you're encapsulated in this little world like they were. So it becomes normalized. So you're just rooting for these ruthless killers. And plus, I'm like, they're eating like sausage and charcuterie all day with their buddies, you know, drinking beers, gambling. It just seems like fun. You know what I mean? It's like, like I said, it's, you know, camp for the camp degenerate camp it's for hedonistic heaven basically and so like i mean at this point henry was such a big shot even at 15 he didn't have to wait for fresh bread on sunday mornings like the baker would come out and give him bread uh just uh even when there was a line didn't matter and finally like to end this like perfect five minute like intro scene to the mafia uh it shows henry running away from like 10, 15 Cadillacs he like blew up. They don't even tell you why he blew them up, but clearly like someone told him to. And it freeze frames with him like in this perfect kind of like celebratory run. And, you know, it just shows how kind of detached from reality this world was. I mean, this seems like, this it seems like this kid died and went to heaven basically. So even when someone shot later, uh, there's pop music in the background and like Leota's, Ray Leota's commonly describing it and it all feels normal. And so we go to the poker games and see more of that. And there's more shark cartery and more sandwiches and liquor and gambling, just heaven. And finally we get to meet uh, Jimmy Conway, you know, the De Niro performance. And he's just instantly throwing twenties, fifties, hundreds at everyone. And he's got like the ultimate control of the room. And they're talking about how he loved to steal and, he was the kind of guy that rooted for the bad guys in the movies. And you're like, okay, I can, I can run with this. You know, De Niro has, a, you always kind of begrudgingly like him. You know what I mean? It's like, he's kind of cooler than the situation always, except I mean, like meet the parents. He's kind of a jerk, but, but yeah, that's the only movie I can think of where you really just like, eh, don't like him. But I mean, like they're talking about the amount of detail that Scorsese puts in this. They're talking about what they steal. They're like booze, cigarettes, shrimp and lobster, shrimp and lobster are always sold best. And it's like, how does he know these little details? I mean, you can tell this was based on a book and it's just like, he tries to give you every snippet of detail. So the world just feels lived in and just, it's just fantastic. Like all the drivers love Jimmy. Everyone got a piece again, like a victimless, victimless crime at this point. And finally, I mean, this is still when Henry's like, you know, 14, 15 in the fifties when it's kind of the golden age of the mafia before the cops really come down on them. Spoiler alert, but uh, Henry gets popped for selling cigarettes outside of kind of a factory. And, you know, he's thinking like, oh, my life's over. You know, this could, and it looks like this could be a turning point for him. It's like, will he go to jail or will he, you know, get out of it? Like, this seems like a definitional moment for him. And also for the movie, like, how's this movie going to go? And uh, he gets to the courtroom. The judge is greased. The lawyer just gives him kind of a smile and he instantly gets off and he's kind of a hero of the group. Like De Niro throws like a thousand bucks in his pocket. And he's like the two greatest things in life. You just learn the two greatest things in life. Never rat on your friends and always keep your mouth shut. And it's like, it's this fraternity, you know what I mean? It's this sense of belonging. You feel part of this group. You're just like, these guys care and they give a shit about each other. And then when he opens the doors, the courthouse, it's literally like the entire, entire mob, you know, it's like 20, 30 guys and they're all shaking him and like saying, congratulations. Like you popped your cherry and you just feel you're in, you know I mean? This is your group of people. This is who you're going to follow for the next two and a half, three hours. And then, I mean, this is the magic of Scorsese. 
he just freeze frames, you know, with Henry being celebrated, like he just won the 1980 uh, men's hockey Olympics against the Russians. I mean, and he, you know, he just got off for selling cigarettes illegally, but you know, they're celebrating him in that way and you're rooting for him. They freeze frame it and bam, it's like eight years later. And then adult Henry, who's Ray Liotta in his kind of, you know, young Sinatra kind of look glory. He's got like the shark skin kind of silver suit and he's just got those, you know, baby blue eyes and kind of, I mean, I don't want to get on a tangent here, but it's kind of amazing that Ray Liotta never hit like this again. Like he seemed like a super A-list like kind of guy after this. He was toe to toe with the Nero and Pesci who were just behemoths at this point. So like what happened? I don't, I don't hear anything about his like personal life or anything. There was a HBO Rat Pack movie where he's a fantastic Sinatra, like kind of mid 40s Sinatra, but that didn't really take off either. And I mean, I love Sinatra. So I I was a weird middle school nerd that wanted to like break away from everyone else and do something different. So I like, I'm like, I'm gonna get really into Sinatra. That'll make me cool. And, you know, newsflash, that does not make you cool. (laughs) But uh, yeah, Leota, I mean, like the only one of the roles I can think of him, he like, he played. Johnny Depp's dad and Blow, Fred Jung, and the dad-son relationship in that movie is just heartbreaking. But he's in there for like five minutes. And he's in this, he's really silly. And if you've seen Hannibal, uh, the terrible uh, second movie for like the Silence of the Lamb secret series, he eats his own brains. <laughs> like he's drugged out. I said that right. He, he's eating his own brains. Anthony Hopkins drugs him, opens his head up, and feeds him his own brains as he's drugged out. And it's just, it's, a, it's an image you can't forget. And, you know, this is kind of older, kind of disheveled. Uh, I mean, he's got his head open. There's a reason for him to be disheveled. But uh, this is not the Ray Liotta of this movie. And I just don't know what happened. Like, he, I guess he's a comet. He just came in for this movie, killed it, and this will be what he's, this will, is what he'll be remembered for, which is fine. I mean, this is, he's, he is this movie. So, I mean, he's the voiceover. He's talking directly to you. He's, like, breaking character sometime. I mean, it is. It is an all-time performance. And like I said, you can't picture like anyone else doing this role. So like his voiceover kind of guides you through this world. Like he gives you details like in this kind of New York tri-state area, there's 30 billion in cargo going through the local airport and they're trying to steal all of it. And if like anyone ever gets pinched, Paulie has connections with the union. So he, sh- he threatens uh, to do strikes. So they back off. And like they casually mentioned the gambling circuits and they're not even described. You know what I mean? Like people are betting and yeah, they're making money on it, but it just shows this kind of whole lived in world that they don't have to get into absolutely everything, even though they, they nitpick their details, which is great too. And like you meet all the gangsters and you know, the camera's just panning and falling in love with each one of them. And some of the names are just fantastic. I mean, it's like Fat Andy, uh, Freddie No-Nos, Pete the Killer. I mean, I wonder what Pete the Killer does. It's like, hmm. So the camera's like dancing around, introducing you to all these unique characters. And it's at the Bamboo Lounge. Very cool, like tiki, uh, 60s chic. There's stolen fur coats in back. And you're just like, what is this world? And like, they're complaining about the fur coats because it's summer. But it's like, they're, they're, they'll, still, they'll still take them. They're still going to make money. And you know, I mean, fur coats, even back then, were just money makers. I, I would like a good fur coat. Not a real one, though, because people would throw blood on it. And plus, animal cruelty. And chinchillas are cute. But I mean, if you feel like a mink coat before, it's like my cat, I think is soft. So fur coats are bad, but I get why people are wearing them, they're soft. And so, I mean, like you kind of get the mantra of what these guys were doing. Uh, like Henry Hill, who's uh, Ray Liotta's character, he's like, we wanted something, we took it. And he's just saying like, there's takers versus scared, scared, scared masses. And it's like this very enticing, siren, enticing uh, siren song, capitalistic kind of mentality. It's just like, take or be taken. And they show you this heist they pull off called the Air France heist. And they get like 400000 in cash. And it's just, it's, they plan it. Like they're whispering to each other. There's three guys. It's uh, Conway, Henry Hill, and this other, uh, this like guard at the airport whispering at a bar. And it's a two minute conversation. And from that, they end up stealing $400,000 in cash from the airport. And there's no, there's no victims, no nothing. And then you meet Joe Pesci as Tommy DeVito. And he is just, he's a laughing psycho. You love him, you fear him. And like I said, he's only five foot four. And you're just wondering, how is this possible? And he's just like, he's just magnetic and he's just telling jokes. And he's just like, he's 
punctuating his jokes by me like bing pow and you're like wow jesus christ these things are moving and i guess because scorsese let him tell his own jokes every time so every every different uh take he was telling just unique jokes they weren't written in the script so that's why like those laughs feel kind of laughs feel natural and that uh that uh they just all seem like friends and like the timing on his stories is off the charts he's basically doing like stand-up comedy and it made me think, like, would Joe Pesci be a good stand-up comedy comedian? I think so. I think I think he's got the chops for it. He's got the rough around the edges, but I'm trying to think who I would compare him to that's actually on the comedy circuit. I don't think anyone ha- kind of has his rough and tumble kind of uh, kind of sense of humor. And then there's the iconic, the best scene in the movie, the how am I funny? Like, no, no, how how am I funny? And apparently, this was made up by uh, Pesci himself. This wasn't written down. Pesci had an interaction with a kid as a kid with a mobster and he said like the mobster was funny in jest and the mobster just didn't take it very, he got pretty pissed off about it. He's like, how am I funny? Like, tell me, what am, what am I doing? And it just stuck with Pesci. So when he's doing with, with Henry Hill and everyone's going quiet and it's like, oh my God, is he going to kill him? I mean, is he that upset that Henry Hill finds him funny? And he, you know, he was telling funny jokes and he was you know, killing the room. But now, now he takes it like as an insult, and that's that's kind of a general theme in uh, a lot of mafia movies and shows that everything goes fine until someone busts someone's balls too much, and these guys are just prideful alpha gorillas, and they just they need to be in control and proud of themselves in all kind of situations. And if you chip away at that even a little bit, they get so over defensive that they overreact. And that's when all the murder happens. And I wonder if that really happens in real life, but I hope not. <laughs> but it seems like it's, it's in too many of the movies and TV that I think it's just part of it. And like, it actually is that literally just busting balls leads to murder apparently. So, I mean, everyone goes quiet and there's uproarious laughter and Henry's, dying laughing while Tommy jumps on top of him. It's like the ultimate frat humor. It's like, I almost had him. I almost had you. And it's like, careful. I think he'll, uh, he'll, he'll fold under questioning. Just, I mean, it's just ridiculous. And Tommy's laughing off like a $7,000 tab in like 1965. I don't even know what the inflation for that is, but if you ran a, I mean, anywhere you run a seven grand tab, like nowadays, that's ridiculous. Back then that's like a 50, $60,000 tab. So, I mean, like, one, what is he ordering? Is it just bottles of Dom that he's like pouring out on the floor? Or is it just over a long period of time? What are his food orders? Is he covering a bunch of people? Is he bringing it home? Is he doing like delivery and takeout? I mean, I want to know. I want to see the the receipt list of his $7,000 tab. And he's just like, I'm not fucking paying this. You know what I mean? Like, And he smashes a glass on the head of the uh, waiter <laughs> and everyone's laughing. It's like, did I take mushrooms before I, I saw this movie? Because this doesn't seem like any kind of reality, but this is what's happening. And then you learn that Polly uh, kind of comes in and partners uh, with the Bamboo Lounge to kind of get Tommy in line. And again, they get to show you kind of, they take you to mob school. It's like the mob acts kind of like locusts. They just run up the credit on the restaurant. They steal things out the back and they demand money every month uh, for their help kind of keeping Tommy and other mobsters in line. And it's, it's this great quote. It's like, oh, you don't have my money? Fuck you, pay me. It's like, business is bad? Fuck you, pay me. Had a, had a fire? Fuck you, pay me. It's just, it's so succinct and so kind of just mic drop, balls on the table, badass. And one of my uh, friends who works at uh, the bar that I work at, he just loves using that line. And he's, you know, he's kind of an old soul. He's a wise, uh, he's a wise guy. He's a good fella, you could say. Uh, 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 that was pretty bad. But uh, he uses this line all the time. It's one of his favorites. And he's a guy I respect and a smart guy. So if he's using it, and he's usually more Eastern philosophy, let things slow, let things go. But uh, this line's too good. And, you know, when you're talking about capitalist endeavors, it's just in life, sometimes you have to just be, you just have to say, fuck you, pay me. And so, I mean, like when they're stealing all the stuff, doesn't matter. It's all profit. And then when like, there's not another buck to squeeze, they let it match. So, I mean, they're just like, they're talking about burning down this restaurant and they're talking about it as casually as they would order a meal. So finally, then they show how Henry meets Karen and he's not interested at all. He's kind of just bored with her. He's got things to do. I mean, clearly he's a man about town and he likes his women, I think. And he's just, he's not, he's not into her and he stands her up 
And then she go, then finally you get her voiceover and you're like, Oh man, you're going to get another voiceover. Okay, cool. So you're going to get different perspectives. And she's kind of just heated that he, you know, stood her up and she goes out looking for him and calls him out on the street corner in front of all his guy friends. And he instantly does like a 180. And I think every guy likes to be called out on their BS. We like it. If our shit stinks, tell us, you know what I mean? Like there's something about strong, independent women giving us, giving us a hard time that is just ultimately super attractive. It's like props to strong women everywhere. And, and I just, sorry, I just got caught up because it is, it's just an intoxicating scene. I don't know if everyone else has that kind of vibe too. And you know, you're having her voiceover. So she's clearly a commanding character. There's not many movies where there's female uh, voiceovers, especially at this time in the in 1990. I didn't think there was many kind of female empowerments. So you got, it was cool that you got Karen's point of view and she had that Jewish uh, gal, New York coffee talk kind of accent too. So she's got some attitude to her and you know, Henry's like, well, what can I do? Can I, uh, what can I do to make it up to you? And she, she just looks at him with this kind of fire in her eyes. And she's like, going to cost you a lot. She just puts a lot of, a lot of accent, a lot of attitude on it, a lot going to cost you a lot. And you're like, Hmm. Yeah. All right. Make them work for it. And like the way the camera kind of dances between the two of them feels alive. So finally they get, well, actually, so I said that scene, the funny how scene is the best scene. This is the best scene. So I'm sorry. I, I get, <laughs> I get overexcited about certain things. I mean, this movie has like seven best scenes. So I'm going to stomp all over. I'm going to forget what I said and just keep saying everything is amazing. So, but this is actually my favorite scene. So it's uh, when Henry and, uh, when Henry and Karen go out on their like real first date, they go to the Copacabana lounge and they're playing the song when he kissed me. And it's the Goodfellas walk scene. It's like there, there's a huge line up front and they're like, you know what? Screw that. We're not going to, we're not going to go through the line. He leaves his car in the street. Someone's going to watch it. He pays him 20 bucks. He's going to go through the kitchen. He's going to like shake hands with the manager. He's going to know everybody, all the cooks. He's going to know all the bouncers. He's putting 20, 50 bucks in everyone's pocket. And they're like they're setting up a table that didn't exist before for him. And it's the coolest. I mean, it's what you dream about when you're 18 to 27. It's like you get to walk in and own the club. Like they're like, dear God, you're here. And apparently this was filmed by accident. Like they wanted to film through the front of the club and they weren't going to allow it. So they had to film, you know, down the side exit. So like what a delightful accident. And it took eight takes to pull off the steady cam one shot. And they did it right every time. Apparently, the comedian at the end, whose name was Henry Youngman, kept botching his lines. So they kept having to reshoot it. I would want to murder Henry Youngman or replace him. I mean, come on. It's like, that's the least important part of the continuous shot. Everything else is so cool and so intricate. I mean, everyone must have been furious. But worked out fantastically. And it's just like the way he says, like, I like going this way better. It's better than waiting in line. Yeah, of course it is, because you're awesome, and you're a big deal. So like like I said, tipping everyone, you know, tables out of thin air. And my favorite, my personal connection to this is I have a friend in Chicago. Let's just call him Harvey Silverberg. And he's got connections in some clubs and some uh, bars in Chicago. I met him through a friend of a friend. We've been good friends for like five, six years. Whenever we go to Chicago... Uh, because of these connections, I kind of always like jab him a little bit like, are we going to do the Goodfellas walk? Are we going to do the Goodfellas walk? And he's like, you know, it's like cheering someone's name three times. Eventually he's like, yeah, we'll do it. And it is the coolest. You will never feel cooler than when you know every bouncer, every bartender, you get to walk through the back of the line, I mean, through the back of the club. You're in the kitchen. Like if he wanted, we're at a club once, he's like, I want chocolate chip cookies. And bam we had chocolate chip cookies baked from like one of the restaurants they owned that were a couple doors over. So no one understands how it feels till it happens. But I mean, maybe sometime I'll take you guys to Chicago or the people that have been to Chicago with me, you know, Harvey Silverberg, he's, he's a good guy. And if you're listening out there, Harvey, you know, I love you. And you know, you make this movie special for me. Every time I see the scene, I grin like 50 times harder than I would normally. And at the end of the scene too, like the way we looked at, the way we looked at Harvey uh, is basically the same way Karen looks at uh, Henry. It's like, what do you do? And he's like, oh, I'm in construction. And, uh, you know, it's like, clearly he's not, but she's just so intrigued. <laughs> so love that. Love that scene. 
And then they, I mean, they go back to stealing, looting. They, like I said, they stole that Air France from the uh, airport, $420,000 without using a gun. And Henry, they're showing kind of Henry and Karen's life together. He's got fistfuls of $50 bills at a country club and he doesn't understand that he doesn't have to tip. Like what a, what a life. And you meet Maury, who's, you know, a degenerate gambler who's making wig commercials, who's kind of in their circle, but is really annoying. And this is part of the magic of Scorsese. Uh, rather than meeting Mar reading Maury and like meeting and feeling how jerky he is, they show you the first thing you show see of him is a clip of his uh, wig commercial that airs on TV. It's one of those hokey, bad local commercials that you just make you want to cringe. And you're like, all right, I hate this guy already. And then you meet him and you're like, okay, I was right. Yeah, he's terrible. <laughs> so just little little flashes, little flourishes like that are what make Marty Marty. And uh, if you want to look at something hilarious, look up, um, look up Marty Scorsese, 1990, and his look. And he's got this kind of chin strap, goatee, slick back hair look. And he just looks, I mean, like a guy who loves cocaine and is just having a good time and is probably indulging himself way too much. And it just makes me laugh every time. And then the movie gets a little bit serious. Karen kind of gets assaulted by one of her neighbors. And this is kind of what the first time you see Henry really flip on the violence. And he pistol whips Karen's neighbor in like the middle of the day, <laughs> which is crazy, in a, like a nice neighborhood, the guy's working on a like a 67 Corvette and he's just bashing him in the face with a gun while two of his friends watching horror, uh, two of the the guy who assaulted Karen's friend, Karen and the friends of, the friends aren't Henry's friends, the friends of the guy who assaulted Karen. Wow, took me a while to get through that one. Sometimes sometimes your your lips and your tongue don't want to cooperate with you and that just, that just happened to me. So let's move moving on. Uh, it just shows like Henry has no care for the rules. He doesn't care. It's the middle of the day. It's like someone touched my girl. I'm gonna pistol whip this dude within an inch of his life. And then I mean, you see Karen kind of watching through the screen door, and she looks kind of horrified. And you're wondering, you know, is this the time she's gonna leave? Is this gonna be a huge fight or kind of a huge rift between the two of them? And he gives her the gun, and they focus on it, and it's kind of this bloody, sweaty little revolver and they kind of slow pan to her face and she, she go, it, it goes gotta admit it turned me on and you're like whoa karen <laughs> you are part of this life you're about that mob life you're in the you know thelma and louise bonnie and clyde kind of life and you just weren't expecting it and you're like okay this is a ride or die for henry so good for them and so funny it's like this is how marty kind of goes through 30 years seamlessly the next scene is their wedding. It's like they've been on one date. There's been one country club and he's beaten up uh, someone who assaulted her and bam, they're getting married next. So he just knows how to move effortlessly through time. He cuts all the fat. It's just a whirlwind of time and place. And just, I mean, I don't think anyone does it better than him. I, I would love to see him. If someone told him, Hey, we got to make a movie from 1900 to 2000 and it's got to be three hours long. Go. And he'd be like, all right, let's do it. And so, I mean, at the wedding, you know, wedding's a great scene too. Everyone loves a good wedding. I don't think I've ever seen a wedding in a movie and I've been disappointed. Like that's a great event. Just everyone's dressed up, you know, drinks are flowing, everyone's happy or there's some drama, but no drama in this one. And, you know, Karen's meeting uh, Henry's family, you know, the mafia family and everyone's named Peter and Polly and Marie. And it's like this unrelenting, you feel like as overwhelmed as Karen does. And she's getting cash gifts. Like you can see like the Benjamin Franklin faces on all the envelopes. And you're like, dear God, how much, I mean, the Jew and me, I just look at her. I'm like, how much did they make from this wedding? It looks like, I mean, I rewound it like three or four times. They got to be making at least 20, 30 grand in cash from all the, uh, from all the envelopes. I mean, some of them are literally like bricks and I'm not sure if they like, there were all hundreds because they might, some of them might be pulling dirty tricks and put like a hundred on the outside envelope that you could see. And then like it's twenties, then it's fives, and then it's ones, and then it's quarters or nickels. But something tells me, I mean, I think you'd get whacked if you did that to, to another uh, mafia member uh, during their wedding. So something tells me it's all hundreds. And it's like 1965, 66. So this is a crazy amount of money. And, you know, it's just a magical scene. They're kind of dancing together and laughing. And, you know, she starts getting, you start following Karen more with the wives. And you kind of see like, 
the wives over time kind of get worn down and that this life kind of hurts and that their kids are all messed up and that they're kind of, they're kind of jaded by this point. And she's wondering like if she could live like that. And she's explained to Henry that like, what if you went to jail? How would I feel? Like, what would we do? And he's like, he says a great line. It's just so convincing. He gets down like on one knee and he's like, no one goes to jail unless they want to. And it's like, you believe him somehow. I don't know how, but like, it's the stupidest thing. It's like the prom, the promise that you can't really promise. And somehow he's getting away with it. So <laughs> just God bless him. God bless those baby blues of Henry Hill. And you know what I mean? And then he seduces her right afterwards. It's like, God, he can just, he can just do what he wants. And Karen sums up the movie perfectly. Like none, none of it seemed like a crime and it doesn't feel that way. It's like, you never see any ramifications until the end of the movie when it all kind of just crashes. There's just kids' birthdays and trips to Vegas and Hawaii. And they just show them like, they, they showed the passage of time, like all the slideshow shots of the Vegas and Hawaii trips. It just makes it feel like you've been with these people for years and years and just how connected and charming and family-esque they are. And then they show like the closets of, uh, of Henry and Karen. And like, my God, they have like suits in every color. She's got these, you know, ornate dresses and cocktail uh, dresses and stuff like that. And they're playing Ain't That a Kick in the Head. Just very kind of, you know, very gangstery, very life is good. Henry's got a waistband full of cash. And Karen, this is one of my favorite things. She's asking for cash. And he's like, how much do you want? And she uses her thumb and index finger to show how big a stack she wants. I mean, that is just, you're in a different level. You're in a different world when you're not even saying how much you need, but they know by how large the stack is, it's like, oh, two inches. So that's like 10 grams. So here you go. And so that's kind of the high point of the movie. And you could honestly stop the movie right then and you'd be like, I'm satisfied. I don't need the rest. But if you want to see the downfall, I mean, you know, pride before the fall. Sure. You can keep watching the movie. So I'll keep going because it'd be a really weird podcast to uh, just stop halfway through. But maybe that'll be my thing. Like describe movies and, you know, get you all hyped up. It's like, oh, this is great. And then just cut out halfway through, drop the mic and get out of there. But no, no, no. I mean, I, once I start something, I got to finish it. So now we get to, to a terrible scene where uh, Tommy, Jimmy, and uh, Henry murder uh, this uh, kind of jackass mafia guy who comes back from uh, jail. His name's Billy Bats. And he's just, he's riding Tommy because he knew him as a kid. And he's like, get your shine box because, you know, he used to shine his shoes. And like I said before, every mafia movie has a conflict via busting balls gone too far. Happens a bunch of The Sopranos. And, you know, every other mob movie and casino, stuff like that. And <laughs> pretty funny, uh, before Tommy kills Billy Bats, though, Jimmy's kicking Billy on the ground. And if you pause it, uh, Jimmy's tongue is kind of wagging, like Michael Jordan going up for a dunk. And I just love it. It's just he's putting, like, a lot of effort, thought into it. And his tongue is just flailing out. So uh, it's really bad that they killed this untouchable guy. This is actually when they're shooting and stabbing in the first scene of the movie. This is that. Like, they're, this is Billy Bats who they're shooting. But, of course, you know, uh, they kill him. They put him in the trunk. Or they think they kill him. He's not dead yet. And then they stop by Tommy's mom's house. <laughs> and it's one of the funniest scenes. And his mom wakes up. It's actually Scorsese's mom, who's super cute. She's a little Italian woman. And this scene was, like, all improvised. And Tommy tells his mom, it's like, oh, I hit a deer. So I need to get the uh, hoof, you know, out of the... Uh, out of the uh, radiator and she's like, Oh, okay, whatever. But I'm gonna cook you guys dinner. And it's like two in the morning, but it's a very grandma thing to do. You know, it's like, Oh, stop. I want to make you food. And what do they do? They sit down and have a meal and they're just joking and talking and it just lightens everything up. And the fact that they can eat and have a good meal while someone's in their trunk, is just crazy. It just makes it, makes it light, makes it fun. And the mom shows him, shows them a painting that he they made, uh, that she made. And it looks just like Billy Bats. And like, they all have a kind of an inside joke together and you're laughing too. And you're like, why, why am I laughing? They're, they're, there's a guy in their trunk that they're murdered or are going to murder. And they're laughing about how the guy in the picture looks like him. Just, you know, Marty takes you down this rabbit hole and you're kind of just, you're with him. You're just like, this is, this is really freaking funny. I think also uh, rather than when they say whacked rather than killed or murdered, I think that kind of normalizes murder. So it's like, ah, eh, whacked him. Yeah, I gave him a good whack. It's like, I don't know, it's just the softness and kind of bounciness of the word whack kind of just makes things seem less consequential. 
And so, you know, I mean, like they kill him, nothing happens for a while, but it's going to come back ramifications. And then they show again that there's no ramifications this time that the Saturdays were for the wives and Fridays were for the girlfriends. Again, no consequences, just absurdist normalization of these balls. And, but we have no other perspective in this movie. So somehow you identify with them. And also I love, I mean, whenever they're talking about crimes or uh, stuff that they're doing, they're saying like, oh yeah, the thing with the guy, it's just fun to say. It's like, rather than just be like very unclear about it. It's like, it could be anything, that thing with that guy, this thing with, or that thing with this guy, or those things with those guys, just love it. And then there's the uh, card, the card scene where uh, Tommy shoots Spider, who was uh, Christopher from The Sopranos. And just like the small details too, like when he shoots him in the foot, Tommy just instantly goes, send him to Ben Casey. And it's like, clearly they have a mob doctor, you know what I mean, who on, on retainer. And they just, you know, they just the little details like that make the world feel so lived in. I just love that. And actually fun fact, so the guy who played Spider who gets shot in the foot and then later murdered uh, by Tommy in the Sopranos. He's uh, Christopher and he shoots a bakery employee in uh, the Sopranos and he shoots him in the foot and they're like, Oh, he shot me in the foot. So it's kind of a callback. So I think my boys do it a lot. You know, they call back to each other. So spider gets murdered later when he just goes, why don't you fuck yourself, Tommy? And Tommy just loses it. And Jimmy's riding him again, ball busting. And apparently this whole scene was improvised. The only line was, why don't you go fuck yourself that they put in the scene. So Marty, Marty gives his people kind of sway. I wonder if he does that in all his movies, like in the aviator could Leo, you know, say what he wanted. I don't think so. I think that seems more structured. Like what movies were improvised more? Wolf of Wall Street, I feel like he'd let Jonah Hill off the leash and just kind of, you know, kind of do it. Cause Jonah Hill definitely that some of that seems improv. So what else would he have improv in? I don't know, but seems like he's a free spirit. He's like, you know, I'm going to cater to my talented actors. So, you know, it's kind of crazy. He just, uh, how Tommy just murders <laughs> just uh, one of their, one of their own too, just for messing with him a little bit. And Henry, Henry and Karen fight this whole time. Super realistic, both excellent yellers and Karen kind of calling out uh, Henry's girlfriend, Janice on like all the buzzers in her apartment. Just love that. You know what I mean? Just the frantic, jealous, uh, rageful wife who's taking it out on the other woman. It's like, we've all seen it. And this is probably the best, just something about uh, Karen's eyes and kind of the manicness and disheveledness about her. And I don't know, just something about it always sends chills down my spine. It's like, man, I'm never going to have a girlfriend on the side because if my wife ever, my imaginary wife ever got, got wind, just no thank you. <laughs> so, uh, and then they show Karen pulling a gun on Henry because she's like lost her mind about the cheating. And the shot of like Henry's perspective looking down the barrel as Karen's kind of pulling the revolver on him, just Scorsese points, just Marty being Marty. And that's like Marty kind of uses music as kind of levity throughout the whole movie. So this scene is without music and it's jarring. It's finally like a turning point in the movie where like things are going downhill. And finally, then Henry goes to jail and then jail's fun. Jail wasn't even a big deal which is just hilarious. You didn't, because you didn't know what to expect from jail but like there's Sinatra playing all the mob guys got their own separate room. Polly is cooking garlic with a razor, like razor thin. And they're arguing over how many onions to put in the tomato sauce. And Vinny, the tomato sauce cook, is actually Scorsese's dad. And they're cooking steaks and they're smoking cigars and they're putting lobsters on ice and playing card games, and drinking whiskey. It's like, this seems, seems like a vacation from their wives. Man, just good for them. And then they get out and this is like the cocaine part of the movie. And you can tell... Marty definitely definitely did his share of cocaine because he nails the performances with all the people kind of zooted out the rest of the movie. And they show the Hill House, which is like the ugliest, gaudy 80s like cocaine house that cocaine built. There's gold flamingos, there's motorized rock walls, there's like these like lacquered black tables that are just hideous. And just I mean, yeah, I mean you can it def- the the mood of the movie uh, takes kind of a turn to like 80s kind of decadence and it's just like bleh and then they show the latanza heist which is actually a real heist it was the largest american heist ever they stole six million dollars from the airport and this is like again just props to marty you can't give more props to him than uh he just gets more props than anybody because he just he has such control this is like 
this would be the central theme, the only thing a movie could do. You know what I mean? This could be a movie in itself, the Latanza heist. You could call it the Latanza heist. It sounds great. And he didn't even show it. He just brushes past it. He just shows you who did it beforehand in the bar. And then afterwards, you see Henry Hill in the shower listening on the radio saying that the heist had been pulled. And he's like slapping against the side of the shower celebrating. And that's it. And it's like, you get how he can fly through things. And he's like, he subverts expectation of what you think of what you think he would focus on. So props to him and props to late Ray Liotta just celebrating the showers. Got a nice baby butt. I like it. And speaking of babies, they, I guess Henry's uh, using a baby in like a baby bag to transport Coke. So, I mean, clearly these people are despicable, but you're still rooting for him at this point. So it's kind of crazy. And at this point, Henry is just coked out of his mind. <coughs> and he's definitely like, Ray Liotta has the MVP of coked outlook. His hair is disheveled. His eyes are kind of bugging. Looks kind of sweaty the whole time. He's getting irritable quickly. I mean, it's just, he knows what he's doing. And I'm not sure if he talked to, you know, drug addicts or something, or Marty probably just told them how he felt on set. <laughs> and that's how he, they went with it. And then kind of the biggest twist in the movie happens. Uh, Tommy, they think he's going to be made, you know, into one of like made guys for the mob. And the plot twist, he gets shot in the head uh, for killing Billy Bats. And it's the whole twist. It's the biggest twist in the movie. Again, he's a uh, Scorsese subverts expectations. I mean, they have like this kind of melodic, nice music playing up until the moment he gets shot. And it's like, it's just a huge twist. And then this is kind of the beginning of the end. This is like, and fade to black. And then you have Sunday, May 11th, 1980, 6.55 a.m. The, the craziest day you've ever seen on screen. It's the last like 45, 50 minutes of the movie. It's uh, Henry kind of just doing a million things in one day. And he's coked out paranoid he's picking up his brother from the hospital who's in a wheelchair he's cooking dinner for him he's doing coke deals he's buying and selling guns he uh he even gets a valium from the doctor while he picks up his uh brother because he looks so disheveled and fun fact the doctor is clay davis from the wire so another wire connection awesome and also this whole time when he's driving he's seeing helicopters around him and he's paranoid. He thinks the helicopters are from him for him. It's just what a scene. It's frantic, stressful, insane, absurd. And it leads to a huge bust in the end that you can kind of feel coming. But first of all, I mean, props to uh, Italian cooking, by the way. The meal that he was going to make. Or he no, he made it. So this is what uh, Henry was going to make. Or did make. Veal shanks, ziti with meat gravy, roasted peppers, stream beans with olive oil and garlic, fried veal cutlass as an appetizer. I mean, my God. Just... I think if there's one kind of uh, one area of the world that knows how to cook better than everyone else, it's Italians. I mean, that is, that is a meal and just just charcuterie and all that good stuff. I mean, they, I think they win, but uh, so, you know, the huge bust at the end, there's Karen panicking, dumping cocaine frantically down a toilet, Henry and Karen freaking out, you know, what are we going to do? Screaming. Like I said, they're just all time screamers with each other. Polly cuts ties with Henry, gives him 32 bucks, 32 bucks. He gives him 3,200 bucks for kind of a lifetime of work. And finally you got consequences and the last 20 minutes are kind of brutal. And you know, he's Henry decides he's going to turn state witness and be a rat. And you know, it's, it's a rough watch, but finally the last scene, he puts his feet up on the stand. Like he's doing like the normal, you know, testifying. And then he breaks the fourth wall starts ranting about how good they had it beforehand. And he's saying like, you know, he still loves the life and they were movie stars with muscle and anything he wanted was a phone call away. He could bet 20, 30 grand on a weekend. Didn't matter. And he's just like, he's getting up from the stand and walking towards you. And he's like, I can do what I want. I don't even need to be in this movie. I'm going to look at you. Like, I don't need to be on this. Like, I don't need to be part of the plot. I'm going to break it because this is what the mafia guys were. We were just, movie stars with muscle. We don't care. You can pay off lawyers, they can pay off judges. And I don't care that I'm in a movie. I'm actually just going to get up and talk to you because this is, I'm just the alpha. And you're just like, man, this is cool. And and finally, you know, you see that uh, everyone else is in jail, but there's a quick cut to Joe Pesci or Tommy firing a gun directly at the screen. 
and a punk version of my way comes on and you're just like, Oh man, this is cool. They, they, I mean, better to burn out than fade away kind of thing. And that's how the movie ends. And you're just like, and you get a little detail about the lives that the real people live, but you don't care. You don't care about the real people. You care about Leota, De Niro, Pesci. And that's all, that's all that matters. These people aren't real in my mind. But uh, so that's my take on one of the, on the best mob movie ever. Now there is one flaw though. So young Henry uh, is left-handed and fully grown Ray Liotta Henry is right-handed. So Marty messed up once Marty, you know, Marty was pitching a perfect game in the ninth and had, had one ball hit off him, but Hey, you know, one hitter is pretty freaking good. So hats off to Marty. Hats off to Leota, De Niro, Pesci, and just God bless Goodfellas for being in my life. And God bless you for listening to me. Bye.